Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Here, our waters are splashing and rejuvenating. Our history is for seeing and experiencing. Our theme parks are for riding and sometimes flying. And our great outdoors are yours for exploring and restoring. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we're joined by Nakane, the singer, a songwriter, and actor. When people heard about the film, they were really upset that we had, I suppose, queered something that was sacred. And queerness was seen as something that was impure, deviant. And then we have the news with me, Brittany Clinton, same as usual. The message going into this week is be a cheerleader. That we need to be intentional cheerleaders for people in our lives who are doing incredible work. And that sometimes we take for granted that they they sort of believe that we support them or they know we love them. And we actually have to be intentional cheerleaders. And the thing about being a cheerleader is that cheerleaders have to watch the game to know when to cheer. Is that you can't be an effective cheerleader if you're not asking the questions, if you're not paying attention to the people in your life. If you are just taking them for granted, you don't know how to cheer effectively. So part of being an effective cheerleader is paying attention. Let's be cheerleaders this week. Let's do it. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam's Way on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. Hey, hey, hey. And this is Duray at D-R-A-Y on Twitter. So, friends, before we talk about the shutdown, did anybody else see that the Richard Nixon Foundation has been actively distancing itself from the latest indictee in the Trump scandal, Roger Stone. Did anybody else see that? That basically they were like, Richard Nixon's legacy cannot be tainted by Roger Stone. Can you imagine? That's when you know you're in deep. (laughs) Being too vile for Richard Nixon. (laughs) I just thought that was the funniest thing I saw all week. Like, scary and awful because Roger Stone, you know, put us in position to suffer through a lot. However, it's also really hysterical. It's kind of wild how blatantly obvious Roger Stone has been about his own, uh, I guess, criminality? I don't even know what you would call it. Like, he has the Richard Nixon tattoo. He did the Richard Nixon pose after he got out of jail. (laughs) He called himself a dirty trickster at some point. Like, he's just been dropping breadcrumbs. Yeah, it's been like decades (laughs) of breadcrumbs, and he didn't think he would get caught. Like, that is wild to me, and sort of a like this example of like extreme privilege to think that you could do all of those things and it would never catch up to you. I mean, it's just if you look at almost every shysty thing that has happened in the bottom rungs of the conservative movement over the last like few decades. Roger Stone always finds himself somewhere in there. And it's important to note that like Roger Stone is a huge part of the reason that Trump is in office. I mean, he's been trying to get Trump to run for president every four years since the 80s, right? And I heard that so much of the language of like build that wall came from Roger Stone telling Trump that like this was an incredible rhetorical device to use for the campaign. And Trump was like, oh, I don't know, that sounds cheesy or dumb. And Roger Stone was the one who kept being like, no, 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 I'm telling you, say build that wall and people will be hyped. And then he did it at a campaign rally and he was like, oh, like Roger was for real. Shout out to the air traffic controllers, uh, the FAA and the flight attendants who were just like, enough is enough. You know, the air traffic controllers can't strike. I don't think they were organizing a strike or a sit out. I do think they were just like, this isn't safe. And I met an air traffic controller once on like the book tour. And I didn't know that they have to take these breaks and all this stuff. Because it's so stressful, because they all manage sort of pieces of the airspace, they all have to work together to like say like, okay, plane's leaving my airspace. They're coming into your airspace. So when people get stressed, like the likelihood of an error is just so much higher. And when the FAA was like, we can't do this and and have it be safe, like, I believe that. And that made a lot of sense to me. And the flight attendants were just like, you know what? We can strike. Let's do it. So shout out to them. And, you know, to all the people who hated on Pelosi, Pelosi is showing us how to stand up to Trump. And she got all the juice. So shout out to Pelosi for, like, just being a G throughout all of this. I do think that there's a necessarily nuanced conversation about 
why folks stuck with Pelosi, right? And I think that there was a necessary and relevant conversation about adding more youth into the speakership. But we have to be careful not to throw out valuable experience in the name of all that is new. And this is someone who, like, can be pushed to be more progressive while also bringing to bear literal decades of congressional experience and years of experience as the speaker so that in times of real toughness like we've had over the last 35 plus days someone who is a real tactician and who understands the strategy here can bring us on home and i think amid all of this the language has been about the 800,000 federal workers who've been out of work and and what's important to remember is that that doesn't account for the interests both the material interests and the sort of like compounded social interest of the stress because they didn't have a specific amount of money at a specific amount of time. Wasn't there a study not too long ago that 40% of America didn't have like $400 in savings for an emergency? And I'm also thinking about how we have to think beyond the 800,000 number and we have to think about the million plus federal contractors who will not get back pay. Doug Jones, I know, has introduced a bill in the Senate, and Ayanna Presley has introduced a bill to make sure that those folks also get back pay. And also just like, even beyond that, thinking about the waiters who work in restaurants that federal workers often frequent who got their hours cut because people weren't coming. You know, this this useless 35 days to pass a bill that could have been passed a month ago has just impacted so, so many people. And like, you know, it's interesting when Trump was like, I know all of those people who work for the government are Democrats. It's like that actually might not have been true before the shutdown. It is probably true now. Those people are like, you know what? This man is not it. And it's while, as you were saying, the total cost of the shutdown still hasn't been calculated. You know, from the last shutdown, which didn't last as long as this shutdown, uh, that one cost $25 billion. So you think about like this political strategy from Trump to try to shut down the government over $5.7 billion to build his racist wall. And the total cost of the shutdown will probably end up being anywhere from $30 billion or more. It's caused incalculable harm. And I think we should be thinking more broadly. And I know, you know Speaker Pelosi has recently signaled her support uh, for a bill that would prevent government shutdowns from happening ever again. Don't go anywhere. More politics the people's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. The savings rock when you find a new way to roll. 
like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. So for my news, I want to talk about uh, a new study that was recently reported in the New York Times. Uh, the team of researchers, which includes University of Pennsylvania linguists, uh, New York University sociologists, uh, and co-founder of the Philadelphia Lawyers for Social Equity organization, what they did was they tested 27 court reporters for both accuracy and comprehension in their transcribing, and they found that court reporters in Philadelphia regularly made errors in transcribing sentences that were spoken in African-American vernacular English. On average, the reporters made errors in two out of every five sentences. To put that in perspective, Pennsylvania court reporters must score at least a 95% accuracy on the test that they take in order to be certified as a court reporter. And in this study, they were only correct on 59.5% of their sentences. So, for example, if someone in court said, he don't be in that neighborhood, a court reporter would transcribe that in this study as, we going to be in this neighborhood which, if you're familiar with African-American vernacular English, is the exact opposite of what that phrase actually intends and what it means. And this is really important, and the findings have uh, potentially really far-reaching consequences because errors and misinterpretations in courtroom transcripts can go on to influence official court record in ways that ultimately are harmful to defendants. And so, you know, we know that people who speak African-American vernacular English are often stigmatized because there are moral and social and intellectual assumptions that are made about them and, and who they are and what they're capable of. But beyond the negative stereotypes, even, the study found that a court reporter's own discomfort with some of the terminology also leads to, to these incorrect transcriptions. Uh, the study suggests that court reporters are not properly trained to accurately understand and transcribe the dialect of African-American vernacular English. And when you consider the fact that black people are disproportionately represented in the court system, especially low-income black people, that's especially concerning. And, and just a, as a side note, but something that feels important and something that I don't know that everybody understands is that African-American vernacular English and slang are not the same thing, right? So slang suggests that a word or a phrase is informal uh, and it's often used between young people and it operates under no set of specific standards or grammatical rules, whereas African-American vernacular English is its own language, it has its own grammatical rules, its own entire system of communicating, born out of years of enslavement in which like the, the sort of languages of people being brought over was combined with the standard English practices in the United States. And they went on to create their own language that has been passed down through different iterations and evolutions over generations. Linguists recognize African-American vernacular English as a legitimate iteration of, of dialect. And I think that's important to know because people can sometimes just like use those things interchangeably, but they are not the same thing. It's fascinating because we read so many kind of outrageous articles in preparation for the pod, but I literally found myself yelping out loud for the first time in I don't know how long while I was reading this article because there was one example where a suspect actually said, I know that I didn't do it, so why don't you just give me a lawyer, dog, because this is not what's up. The state Supreme Court ultimately ruled, according to this article, that police did not have to cease questioning him because, quote, lawyer dog was ambiguous. Even though dog has been used frequently in everything from TV commercials to people making fun of AAVE, and I would think that it's actually a pretty well-known expression, here we see someone whose rights were actually violated because that's the way that they naturally speak. And I found myself so incensed when I read this. And again, this is just a reflection of the fact that socially, we don't treat AAVE like it's legitimate. So this is just a reminder to how many levels there are to systemic racism, uh, in particular with the criminal justice system. We know that black people are more likely to be charged uh, and convicted and sentenced often to longer terms for the same offenses uh, as a white person would be. Uh, we know that black people are less likely to have their voting rights restored or less likely to uh, be able to get a job after returning back from uh, incarceration. Uh, but here is something that I wasn't thinking about, and that is the role of court reporters and documenting uh, what was actually said in the process of uh, getting witness statements, the process of 
uh, the trials. Uh, and this is something that, that also has an impact in the likelihood that somebody will be able to be exonerated for uh, being sort of falsely accused. Uh, it has a, an impact on overall rates of incarceration and sentencing disparities. So this is something that, that we have to be paying attention to and is a reflection of broader disparities in the system where you have, you know, I, I haven't seen data on the racial demographics of court reporters, uh, but I imagine like every other aspect of the criminal justice system, they are disproportionately white. So what I thought was interesting is about 40% of the sentences the court reporters transcribed had something wrong. About 67% of attempts at paraphrasing weren't accurate, and 11% of transcripts were called gibberish, which was sort of fascinating. But when they looked, and Sam, this sort of goes to this idea, because I too was like, we should just recruit more black court reporters, is that when they looked at the test performance, black court reporters who were roughly 26% of the sample scored higher at paraphrasing It made fewer mistakes around syntax, but their transcriptions weren't more accurate than their counterparts. So across race, court reporters shared negative views of dialect, which was like one of the more surprising findings. So when you look at like, what do the researchers say we can do about it, is that they say that accuracy in dialect should be tested in the court reporter certification process. And that makes a lot of sense that like, if you only test sort of the Queen's English as the basis of what it means to be able to know how to transcribe, then like you're missing out on a whole host of other things. It is a reminder too, and Clint, I'm happy you brought like this article up because it's a reminder that there are all these people who interact with all of the systems, criminal justice, education, health, who like you never see, you never think about, like they're not often the subject of studies. Like, you know, we are talking a lot about prosecutors and judges, and we have been for a long time. Studies around bailiffs and sheriffs and court reporters, transcriptionists, like that stuff never makes it to the public, but those people have a lot of power. And it also made me think about how history will remember some of these cases. So when they transcribe it wrong and you go back to like, look at what was said during the court case and they literally just like change the meaning And you think about how that'll impact somebody's appeal. You think about how that'll impact as like a piece of evidence in a later court case. And like that is actually staggering. And the reporters sort of note that they don't know how many people might be able to challenge a case based on these errors. But uh, that made me think about like the implications of this far beyond the moment. So my news is about Florida, where this past week, there was another mass shooting. This time, uh, a shooter uh, who was a man shot five women uh, execution style in a bank. Of the many things that are wrong with and need to be talked about regarding this incident, uh, one thing that was particularly interesting was that a new piece of legislation that was enacted uh, and added to the state's constitution this November uh, is called Marcy's Law that impacts the way that police are actually reporting what happened in that incident. So because of Marcy's Law, which is a law that's now in place in 15 states that is framed as sort of a way to provide victims of crimes with additional rights and protections and the ability to have their voice heard in various stages throughout the criminal justice process. Uh, Well, in Florida, the implication of that law is that police uh, are now refusing to release the names of many of the women who were killed in the bank shooting because under Marcy's law, they're claiming that crime victims should have the right to prevent the disclosure of this information because it could be used to locate or harass them or their families. So. I wanted to talk about this because Marcy's Law has been something that uh, has been spreading across the country now. As I said, there are 15 states that have some version of this law in place. It impacts various aspects of the criminal justice system, not only the release of public information that is often really important when you're thinking about uh, understanding and collecting data about everything from criminal justice sort of sentencing to police violence and who's being impacted by that, uh, but also impacts things such as parole, uh, the likelihood that people will get parole and when they can get parole uh, to other aspects of the criminal justice system as well. So uh, this is what's going on in Florida uh, and it's sort of an evolving uh, situation where different states are trying to interpret what this law actually means and how it will impact the criminal justice process. You know, Sam, I remember talking about Marcy's Law a while ago because we were trying to think about whether we were going to publicly uh, sort of say anything in in support or in disagreement. I remember then that I was struck by the ACLU coming out against it and and also struck that this is sort of like the pet project of a billionaire, that there is one person who has spent roughly $75 million to uh, get these laws on uh, the books. So in places where the legislature has to vote, for it. Most of those places have voted against it because they understand the, the legal ramifications in places where uh, citizens can just put it on the ballot straight up. Uh, it is doing fairly well. 
Now, it's a victim's sort of rights bill. And one of the things that's hard when we talk about victims' rights is that you know, we believe there shouldn't be victims, right? Like people shouldn't have to be victims. People shouldn't be victims of crime. So that's sort of like a given at the front, but also trying to make sure that we balance uh, like the role of victim services in legal proceedings uh, with the role that the prosecutor's office has or like the people representing the state. So what this law does in some places, it actually gives the victim the right to participate in almost every part of uh, the criminal proceedings. So like the right to speak before sentencing and like the right to make statements and those sort of things that could actually dramatically sway uh, the outcome or the decision-making process in ways that like might be emotionally satisfying, but might not be the most just and equitable. There are some studies that are starting to come out that are suggesting that since the law has passed in some places that people are less likely to get parole, that like it actually is having a dramatic effect on a set of decisions because people feel like they should be aligned with what the victim is saying or people who have been victims. So that was really interesting. Uh, Also, one of the things that it it does in some places, and there's thought that this is going to reach the Supreme Court, is that it says that um, victims actually can't be deposed, can't be asked for statements, can't be, they essentially can choose not to participate in any of the legal proceedings. And the challenge with that is that what lawyers are saying is that you know, like if you get accused of a crime, you actually have the right to confront your accuser. And that is your constitutional right. And that this actually is running counter to the idea that you get to confront your accuser, because this is saying the accuser actually doesn't have to participate if they don't want to in any part of it. So I I understand the spirit of the law. It in practice, though, is so different. And like Sam talked about in Florida, we're seeing this sort of tension right now where they're not releasing victims' names. So from a data collection perspective, it actually will be really interesting to see what it does when like, we won't even know anything about the people who've been victims of crime and how that might actually dramatically shift the criminal justice work in ways that were unintended. You know, DeRay, one of the things that I found interesting was not just that the ACLU actually came out against this law, but that other victims' rights groups came out against it. What they essentially said was, they're worried about the fact that this will be an unfunded mandate, that this will create additional burdens for police departments, for prosecutors' offices, and having to provide victim services when existing rules for victim services are already not being satisfied. So there are so many ways in which the things that victims are and their families are already asking for are not being provided. So in addition to all of the things that you've said, victims' rights groups themselves have a lot to say about this bill. And I agree with you that we should always have a bit of extra scrutiny whenever there's one person with a lot of resources that seems to be the the entire fuel for a particular policy stance. This is not necessarily specific to Marcy's law as much as it is the way we think about what rights or what sort of power victims of crime should have in the the sentencing or conviction or parole opportunities for those who may have committed harm. The way that I tend to think about it is that if someone committed a terrible and egregious act of harm against a loved one, in my case, I would be right to have a visceral emotional response and that that visceral emotional response would likely want that person to be punished in a like huge way because I would be angry, because I would be upset. I think that emotion is fine. That emotion is not misplaced necessarily. But what I do think is that one person's visceral response or emotion to a tragedy should not have a disproportionate amount of influence on the way that we conceive of policies around incarceration, around parole. And, and I think, you know, the last piece of this is you know, who's actually funding it. And I think the fact that you have this billionaire able to pass legislation in 15 states that even the victims' rights groups are not supporting, I think is a reminder that, you know, oftentimes people with a lot of money are able to spend, let's say, two to three million dollars to put something on the ballot in a particular state. And those things that end up making it to the ballot often reflect the priorities of the people who are paying for them. Uh, And so in in this case, this billionaire was personally impacted by somebody who he lost uh, that was a victim of a crime. That was sort of his motivation. But I think about all of the other sort of causes and issues uh, that continue to not be solved uh, through state legislatures uh, that could be solved through ballot initiatives and other means. But oftentimes there's no funding behind those efforts uh, because oftentimes the people with a lot of money aren't directly impacted by them. So just a broader commentary on the way in which uh, this legislation ends up coming to be uh, and, and how we need to think differently about oftentimes how that, those investments uh, are spent uh, in, in actually impacting the policies and practices of the democracy.
So we talk often about criminal justice and policing. So I want to bring us back to Ferguson, back to my hometown of St. Louis, because this issue of excessive court fines and fees is still going on. I was named to the Ferguson Commission in 2014. And over that next year, we heard directly from community members and young people and academics that the municipal system existing in St. Louis County was part and parcel with the police violence that we were experiencing. As a result of the report that we put out with their input. There have been lots of efforts in state legislatures to limit the number of small police departments that can exist in a particular county. Other strategies have included actually allowing the small police departments to exist, but to condense the number of courts, because that is primarily where a lot of the fees are coming from. Most urgently, though, our friends over at the Arch City Defenders are continuing to attack this through litigation. They are suing multiple municipalities, including Florissant, which is where I grew up and have indeed been pulled over many times, and Edmondson, which is small, they only, uh, I want to say they employ about 11 police officers full time. Uh, And in 2014, the mayor of Edmondson sent out a memo in which he told the city's police officers, and I quote, I wish to take this opportunity to remind you that the tickets you write do add to the revenue on which the police department budget is established and will directly affect pay adjustments at budget time. Again, severe conflict of interest. Whatever the solution is moving forward, we cannot understate the impact that it has on people. People obviously are over-policed, but because of these fines and the jailing that comes along with them, people lose jobs, they lose homes, they lose cars, they lose childcare. Attempting to satisfy the labyrinth of fines and fees court requirements, etc. I brought this here because we can just never forget what's happening in the places that were the genesis of so many of our movements. And we can never forget that money is deeply intertwined with police violence always. You know, Brittany, as you mentioned, there have been so many efforts to try to address this underlying issue of the overuse of fines and fees, uh, particularly on on low-income black residents uh, in Missouri. One of those efforts was passing legislation directly in response to the Ferguson Uprising that was statewide legislation that imposed a cap on the percentage of overall revenue that a municipality could make through fines and fees alone. Uh, And the cap that they set was 20% for all jurisdictions except for jurisdictions within St. Louis County. Uh, And for St. Louis County, it was a lower rate of 12.5%. So you couldn't make more than 12.5% of your overall revenue uh, from fines and fees. So that was something that uh, was a major accomplishment, uh, would have addressed a big piece of this. uh, But ultimately, the state Supreme Court decided to invalidate just that provision of the law. So now we're back sort of almost at square one with St. Louis County having this 20% cap uh, and still being able to have police departments uh, that make a significant portion of their revenue through fines and fees. Uh, So it's just an example of sort of the interplay of the courts uh, and the legislature uh, to, you know, even when you see progress on one front, oftentimes uh, the courts act in ways that continue to allow police and enable them to engage in these types of unconstitutional practices. Something that struck me about this was the 2006 article that your news refers to, Brittany, from the research division of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, which found that a one percentage point decrease in city revenue yielded a 0.38 percentage increase in traffic tickets. And so that's like a very statistically significant correlation. And intuitively, it makes sense, right? If, if you have a scenario in which most so much of your city revenue comes from traffic tickets, or if you are in a position where you are not going to increase taxes for, for whatever reasons, you have to find different ways to increase that revenue. It just makes me wonder and have questions about the sort of inner workings of and conversations that are taking place within institutions because someone is communicating to officers that you need to get more tickets. There have been a lot of organizations like the Art City Defenders, the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, the Civil Rights Corps, uh, who, you know, we met them in St. Louis a long time ago before they even started the Civil Rights Corps. They've been filing class action lawsuits against dozens of courts in, in cities across the South and the Midwest and the West. And the the lawsuits have actually been really productive, sort of forcing these municipalities to stop with these fines and fees. What I didn't know, and I learned this in preparation to talk about it today, is that there are even some places that charge a booking fee when you get booked. So like when you get arrested and you get booked into jail, like they charge you a $25 fee. So people have been fighting that. Uh, I was actually just emailing back and forth with somebody who's incarcerated in Missouri, 
And he was like, can you send me money? I'm like, yeah, well, how much can I send you? And he was, and I was like, I actually already send him a set of like some money every month automatically out of my account. But I was like, I, you know, I didn't know how much you can get. And he was like, okay, let me ask. And like an hour or two later, he writes me back and he's like, if I get more than 500 in a month, then they actually just take that and charge it for room and board. And I was like, really? They charge you for room and board with like whatever cap they make. And he's like, yeah, that's what I was told. And I was like, that is really wild. So uh, the find and feed stuff that I think hits the news is like only the tip of the iceberg and the way that this is actually playing out in people's lives every day that we don't even know about because they're not in studies yet or people don't have experience with. Yeah, my news is about abortion providers, and I was really interested because there's an article that came out that was about uh, doctors who travel across uh, state lines to perform abortions. So the article's entitled 60 Hours, 50 Abortions, a California Doctor's Monthly Commute to a Texas Clinic. And what I learned from it is that there are about 1,700 abortion providers nationwide, and they perform nearly a million abortions a year. Uh, but the doctors who do them like aren't spread evenly. They're sort of clustered on the coast. So there are a lot of abortion uh, doctors in um, California and a lot in like New York and some of the places on the coast, not many in the middle of the country. And the consequence of that is not only are the laws becoming harder in those places, so there are a lot of states we've talked about before where there's only like one place, like Missouri, to get an abortion, but there actually like aren't a lot of providers who know how to do them or are licensed to do them. So there's actually a set of abortion rights activists who created a program in 2016 to match clinics needing doctors with those who could travel to actually perform the abortions. And this article is about uh, one of those doctors. And it was really interesting. So the estimates by abortion providers uh, put the number of doctors who cross state lines at around 100, three dozen of whom were matched by this program that started in 2016. The states that are in need of abortion doctors the most are Arizona, Florida, Kansas, Michigan, and Texas, which I thought was interesting. And most of the traveling physicians come from Maryland, New York, Oregon, Washington State, and California. So to give some context, in California, just 5% of women live in a county without an abortion clinic. But in Texas, 43% of women live in a county without an abortion clinic. And the last thing I'll say is they quote a doctor who talks about some of the misconceptions and what it's like to be in a state that requires you to like do an ultrasound or like you know, give out a pamphlet that has false information. And what the doctor was saying is that half of abortion patients were using contraception when they got pregnant, which is a myth buster for a lot of people. And that more than half of women who have abortions already have children. And the provider was trying to map this out to help people understand what is leading to the choices and like just the context of people making choices to have an abortion, which I thought was interesting. So that's my news. So just some numbers to provide so that people have a, a sense of the scale of this issue. There are 1,700 abortion providers nationwide. They perform nearly a million abortions a year, uh, which is a larger amount of abortions than I was cognizant of. Uh, additionally, half the pregnancies in the U.S., uh, this organization found, are accidental. Half of accidental pregnancies end in abortion. And importantly, one in four women will have an abortion in their lifetime. And I think that's really important because... You know, abortion isn't necessarily something that people always speak openly about. And and specifically for men, the way that sexism and, and patriarchy manifest themselves and the way that that operates means that there can be a distance that people feel from this issue. And, and there's like a, a lack of proximity, both social and empathic proximity that people feel and specifically men. And I think it's important to remember how many people are like really being impacted by this, how many people this means a lot for, and that when people talk about the importance of women's reproductive rights, that this impacts like millions and millions of, of women across this country every day. And sort of the socioeconomic dimension to this when you're seeing so many of these Republican-controlled states implement restrictions that make it much harder for women to obtain an abortion or make folks you know, travel much longer. You have to go to a clinic multiple times to obtain an abortion, first to get an ultrasound and then to go back to the clinic. And all of those barriers make it harder for folks who are lower income, folks who don't have access to transportation, folks who are living in rural areas, areas with higher rates of poverty, uh, to be able to, to obtain an abortion. Whereas for folks who are you know, at the higher end of the economics, uh, socioeconomic spectrum, it's not really creating the same level of burden. People can fly to another state. People can access and pay for all of the related costs. Oftentimes we hear from the conservative side of things this idea that you know nobody should be obtaining an abortion and, and all of this, but really what they're trying to do is, is limit who obtains an abortion to people who have the means to do so. Here's the thing, and this is a point that some folks might not like, but it's the truth. If men could get pregnant, 
none of this conversation would be happening. In other words, if the folks that have gendered social power were the ones who were subject to this procedure, we would not be talking about limits. We would not be talking about cost. We would not be talking about arcane rules. We would not be talking about 24-hour waiting periods. We would not be talking about the shuttering of clinics that provide far more than just abortion services. We would not be talking about doctors having to travel across state lines to perform a procedure that 25% of American women will experience in their lifetime. We would not be having this conversation. So we need to be having the current conversation through the correct lens. And to Clint's point, that is a lens of patriarchy and sexism. That is a lens of racism and poverty, to Sam's point. The lens that we have to take on this has to be one of truth and honesty. And the only truth that I see is that we women continue to be told what we can do with our bodies. Meanwhile, when it's all said and done and people need everything from government assistance to good schools and good housing for their children that they then have, those same voices are nowhere to be found. I'm frankly quite frustrated and sick of not just the fact that this is going on, and I'm grateful to you for bringing this news because a, a lot of people think that it will all be over with, with Brett Kavanaugh, and it, it, it's been going on for such a long time. But I'm just frustrated with us having this conversation in a, in a really disgusting and dishonest way. I'm grateful that places like this podcast are doing the opposite. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Hey, it's me, your barista. You know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Well, now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. And it's foaming delicious. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... <laughs> uh, you heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. And now my conversation with Nakani, singer, songwriter, actor. Nakani, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod of the People. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, I know you have a, a new project coming out soon, and we should definitely talk about that. But you starred in the 2017 film The Wound, yeah. which got a lot of feedback. And for people uh, that haven't seen the movie, I'd love to hear you talk about it and how you got to the movie, and then how you generally got to producing art in the way that you produce it, music, film, like what that looks like in your story. Well, the film is called The Wound, and it's closer, it's called which is the language that the film is written in and acted in. It's about an initiation for boys in the closer community. It's a rite of passage from boyhood to manhood where they are separated from their community and are taken to a mountain and are circumcised and then spend about a month in healing where they normally have caregivers and are taught, I suppose, the ways of being a man when they leave the separation when they go back to the community. The film, well, it's a secret and sacred rite of passage. So whoever has not partook in the rite of passage, so women, men from other ethnicities are not supposed to know about it because it's really, really secret. And we made a, a movie about it called The Wound. And not only that, we, I guess, queered it we add the story revolves around three queer characters what attracted you to this project initially john Trenkov, who's the director had asked me to score the film because i just released my first album in south africa in 2013 and someone had introduced him to my music and he thought that 
I would be the right person to score the film. I had a meeting with John, we had a coffee and I had all these ideas, which now I realize were not going to work at all. You know, so we had this meeting and a few days later, I think, he called me and he said, you know, after meeting you, I was wondering if you would like to audition for one of the roles. And I, I was a little bit unsure whether I wanted to act. So John said, you know, if you aren't good, then we just won't cast you. And I am a very competitive person, so and I love to prove a point. <laughs> it's my downfall in life. So he sent me the scene that he wanted me to prepare, and I did what I needed to do. And as they say, the rest is history. I got the part. I love it. And, and what was the response from people, especially people who hadn't seen queer characters portrayed uh, in film in that way before? There had been some cinematic visibility about the subject and it always was banned but it was always documentaries it was always non-fiction work and they always ended up like only playing for one episode or two episodes before i guess the traditional gatekeepers would shut those films down or even books sometimes you know so as far as i know and if i'm wrong i hope someone corrects me this is the first one which was fictive and this was the first one that spoke about the fact that queer bodies exist in the space, which is supposed to be, I guess, emblematic of manhood, whatever that means, masculinity in its most hyper, in its most extreme. It's all so performative about what it is to a man and what not to do, otherwise people will not take seriously as a man, etc., etc. That's some of the lessons. That's not all of the lessons. When people heard about the film, they were really upset that the film existed at all, that we had, I suppose, queered something that was sacred, and queerness was seen as something that was impure, deviant. And one of the arguments that I heard a lot was that it was a misrepresentation of the culture, the queer characters. And I remember sort of replying with, well, how can it be a misrepresentation of the culture if I, Nakane, who is Chosa, a practitioner of the culture who has gone to initiation and am queer, and I definitely am not the only one, I exist. So it can't be a misrepresentation because I'm real, you know? <laughs> how does that even exist in any way? That argument, how does that argument hold any water? And then people got really, really mad. And what did you, how did you deal with the response? I come from a family of people who are ready to, I don't want to say ready to fight, but ready to, <laughs> to, to take on whatever the challenge is. And so I was, ready, I was ready to take on the challenges. When I agreed to be part of the film, I did not think that the responses would be as intense as they ended up being, I knew that people would be upset, right? I knew that would sort of ruffle some feathers, but I didn't think that people would want to kill us. Wow. So when you think about your transition, you know, you're an actor, a writer, a musician. When did you transition to music? Like, what was that like? Choirs was such a big deal where I come from in the Eastern Cape of South Africa. Some people go to the movies. We went to to the town hall to watch choirs sing almost every weekend. And every night, my mom and my aunts went to choir practice, and I normally went as well. And I'm talking about massive choirs, like 60-plus voices. So that's all I knew for a long, long time. And by the time I went to school, I knew that I had the ability to sing, and I knew that I could sing very well because it was in my body, you know, whereas all the other mediums had to be learned and were separate. So all the other ones, acting and writing, came a little later. How would you describe the, the album? And what was the impetus for the album? Wow, um, how would I describe the album? You know, the album has been out for almost a year now. It was in, in Europe. It's only coming out now on February the 22nd in North America. And I feel like I should be... I should have an easy answer for you by now. But uh, the album is 
sensual. When I was writing it, I was calling it Hymns for the Lost, Hymns for the Apostate, <laughs> you know, hymns for, hymns for the Hated. It's very voice intensive because I was writing about my childhood and I was writing about the churches that I was born into. I was writing about my grandmother, who was a big part of my upbringing. And I was trying to write about, I guess, the church that I went to from around 20 to 25, which was different to the churches that I grew up in, which was much more conservative. I always make a joke and say that the church that I went to was like the Westboro Baptist Church, but without the picketing. It was that intense. And so by the time I'd finished writing for the album, which was around when I was 29, I had, I think, written an album that was less bitter and angry and more empathetic and, I suppose, reflective and, if, if not full of love, then full of compassion. And can you talk about the religious influences? I think about the music video for Interloper with the black choir in robes uh, and the music yeah. video for Clairvoyant <laughs> with the intimacy between two men. Like, how do you, how do you think about the religious influence in your work? Well, the religious influence in my work is something that's always going to be there, whether I like it or not. You know, I call it my mother tongue, even though I've rejected it, even though I've left it. It was the first mode of spirituality that I knew. So the stories are too entrenched in my psyche for me to just let go, you know. And also on another level, you know, I always say this to my friend as a joke, because like Christianity used me. I do reserve the right to use Christianity now as well, you know, <laughs> for my own good, you know. I love it. Now, for people who haven't seen the music videos and haven't seen your work before the albums come out, like, how do you want them to think about the project that you are engaged in? Like, how do you want them to, like, start to think about your work before they've seen it? Huh. You know, I watched this documentary, this interview with Joni Mitchell a few years ago. And she said something really beautiful where she says, if you're going into the work and you're trying to find Joni, you've missed the point. But if you go into the work and it makes you feel something and you get something out of it, and it changes your life, makes you cry, makes you laugh, makes you whatever, then you've sort of gone to it from the right angle. You know, I'm nothing but the mouthpiece here. It may sound, I guess, cheesy, but I really just want people to, to feel something and be touched by it and be moved by it. How did you make the decision to come out? Like, why was that important to you? <laughs> well, well, because that's what we did, Right. I mean, queer people are told that that's what they do. They come out. The assumption is that you, you're born and you're straight. And then you, you deviate from the normal path. And then, you know, and then you have to come out and, you know, you have to go through pain and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know. And I, and I don't know how different it is for, this, for the younger generation, but up until a certain age, the desires that you have don't have a name. And they don't have a morality. And they don't have a sort of weight on whether they're right or wrong. And they don't belong to anything and to anyone and to any God but yourself and, I guess, the person that you are acting out those desires with. So I always knew I was attracted to men and women, I guess, you know, but mostly men. <laughs> so by the time I was a teenager, I, I that was very clear. But... I'd read the literature and I wanted my friends to know, I suppose, the authentic me, which is a word I really loathe. I hate the word authentic because it's abused, I think. But um, when I was 17, I came out to my friends and to my cousins who were of the same age. And that was no big deal, really. They were like, well, come on, Nakane, we've seen you move. <laughs> <laughs> we've seen you talk. You know, we know you. It was a piece of cake. No big deal. And then around 19, I was outed by an ex-girlfriend of mine who told my mother and, well, who told her mother and our mothers were friends and then her mother told my mom. And that was much more painful. That was, that turned ugly. And I went back into the closet, really, so to speak. 
you were pushed back in the closet a little bit because of your parents' response or because of a community response? Mm, I don't want to blame anyone, but <laughs> because those people aren't here to defend themselves. But I mean, if it were up to me, I would have come out and then that would have been the end of the story. Actually, Donnell Moore says something really amazing the other night. He said uh, he he doesn't use the term coming out. He, he uses the term invite people in to your life. And I really like that. I just wanted to put that there as an aside. But yeah, it was a community thing. It was a family thing, you know, because my family was and is still very Christian, and particularly my mother. And I was taken to prophets who prayed over me. And I just got tired of fighting. Do you know what I mean? I was tired of explaining myself. And there was still that belief in me that I was dirty and wrong. What do you tell people who have tried everything that they've been told, but uh, they're losing hope a little bit? That Like the world's not changing in a way that they have that they thought it would, but they, they've tried and... And they are struggling in these moments to have hope. What do you say to those people? I always say to my friends, do you remember me when I was 24 years old? And I said, if I'm not signed by 25, I'm going to go back to Alice where I was born and I was going to grow potatoes. And my friends normally say, yeah, you were, you were being an idiot. And I say, but I really meant it. I really, really meant it because life was really, really shit. And then I got signed a few months later. And they go, yeah, do you remember? You really were an idiot, weren't you? <laughs> but I always say, you never know what tomorrow holds. Be careful who you surround yourself with. Be careful of your mind. And just be kind. I think it comes back to you. It, comes, it really comes back to try making the world a better place. And the other question that I ask everybody is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? My grandmother, who my album is dedicated to, who passed away about 11 years ago, once said this to me because she didn't listen to anyone. She did what she wanted, and she was really my hero, and she still is. And she said to me, because she was quite a drinker and a smoker, which was something that black women of that generation were not supposed to do, you know, and she did it anyway. And she is, she always used to say to me, Nakane, if you're going to drink alcohol, make sure that you're not going to do it under the bed or in a wardrobe somewhere. Because all of those secrets are going to come out and you're going to be humiliated and you're going to have to, have to apologize and you would have lost your dignity, et cetera, et cetera. Do everything in the open from the, from the get-go and believe in the truth. And I've always tried to implement that in every facet of my life. Do everything honestly. Well, I appreciate you coming to Party of the People. We look forward to staying in touch. Thank you so much, Dewey. It's been um, a pleasure speaking to you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Party of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.